Welcome to the Wealth Studying Podcast. This is episode 222. Today is April 20th, 2017. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. On today's episode, we're going to talk about a recent Verizon stock purchase that I made. And that's what the particular details are going to be about. But in more general terms, we're going to discuss one of my strategies around buying stocks, which is anticipating breakouts. And it's a strategy that is constantly changing and evolving. So we're going to talk about that, as well as a common theme here in the Wealth Setting Podcast, which is ignoring the media news and the media bias. And also, we're going to throw in there a couple other topics, uh, depending upon how the time goes. Uh, in particular, I'd like to discuss William O'Neill's book, How to Make Money in Stocks. So before we get down to business, I do want to do a shout out to the gas doc. Whenever I talk to my friend Mike, he always chastises me for not producing enough podcasting content. We just talked the other day, and one of the first things he said was, where are the podcasts? So hey, gas doc, this episode's dedicated to you. And in keeping with the Verizon theme of today's show, hey Mike, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? So let's talk about Verizon stock. On April 5th, that's about two weeks ago, what, 15 days ago or so, I purchased Verizon stock. Incidentally, whenever I buy or sell a stock or make some kind of a change to my portfolio or something that I think it's important related to my portfolio, I do blog about it over at investablewealth.com under the observations and commentary section. You can subscribe to that free of charge. You'll get email notices whenever there's a, a new post there. For those of you that are worried about getting spam or you wonder what the content's going to be, well, you know what? It's no secret. Everything I've ever blogged about since like 2013 is on that site for you to scroll through. So take a few minutes, read what I've posted in the past. If it doesn't interest you, don't subscribe. But if you want to follow my trades, that's where you're going to learn about them first. You're not going to see it on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere else. Now, while we're on this topic of my posts over there, let me also digress a little bit here. Because in today's podcast, one of the things I'm going to tell you is that you should ignore most, if not all, of the stories you hear in the media. And so I know some of you are really bright and you're saying, well, John, why should we listen to you? Your opinion's no better than anybody else's. And you're absolutely right. Our biases, our prejudices, our general thought consensus usually is derived from or highly influenced by where we get our income from, right? It's usually said that wherever your paycheck comes from, that's where your opinions come from. I don't make any more or less money whether you listen to this podcast or whether you listen to my blog. There's no Patreon subscriptions. There's no newsletter subscription. There's none of that. In the coming weeks, uh, you'll probably hear me talk about a book that I'm launching. I'm publishing the book in an effort of kind of uh, open source spreading the knowledge that I have. It's going through a publisher. Whatever amount of money you purchase that book for, I'm probably going to get pennies on the dollar if I'm lucky. I didn't write the book to make money. I don't do the podcast or the blog or any of those things to make money. I invest to make money. I invest my client money to make money. My source of revenue comes from making wise, consistent investment decisions. While I'll be the first one to admit that I'm full of opinions, my wife is constantly reminding me of that fact. I also remind her that it's the nature of those very opinions that keep her in the lifestyle that she's accustomed to. And so my advice to you is that you should ignore most of the things that are in the media because they're not there to make you money. They're there to create advertising revenue. It's all about drama. It's clickbait. 
It's just creating eyeballs so that those media outlets can sell advertising. That's why I don't think you should listen to what people say. I think you should watch what they do. And that gets back to me and my opinion. Of course, I'm very opinionated. And it's up to you to judge whether or not that's all noise or whether there's some wisdom there. I encourage those of you that are new to go back and listen to the first 10 episodes of this podcast. This is where it all started on Independence Day in, uh, I guess it was 2014, when I launched the podcast. And I put out there my 10 wealth building principles. They're not complicated. They're repetitive. They're easy. They're common sense. That's how I've built my wealth over the last 30 plus years. And I think if you follow those kind of ideals, you'll build wealth too. It won't come overnight. I don't believe in get-rich-quick schemes. I'm not a day trader. I don't think one particular method or one particular algorithm is perfect and works all the time. Wealth is built, wealth is created from production. That's the whole essence of wealth building principle number three. Production is the source of wealth. Production comes in many ways. It can be a product or service, something that's very physical, something that's very tangible. You can manufacture and sell a widget. That's a product. You can create a service. My investment advisory firm is a service. It's where I derive some of my wealth from, some of my income. But investing in and of itself can be a source of production. Whenever you take your savings, the capital that you have, that you've accumulated from learning how to earn and how to save, when you take that money and wisely invest it, what you're doing is buying shares in publicly traded companies that are producing products and services. And so investing is a form of production. It can be investing in your own small business and starting a lemonade stand, or it can be investing in the stock market by going out and buying shares in Apple or Google. In any case, production is the source of wealth. Ah, <laughs> but I digress. I not only give you opinions, I also tell you my positions. And so you not only have to listen to what I say, you can see what I do. If I buy healthcare ETFs, I tell you what they are. If I invest in blue chip dividend paying stocks, I tell you about them. If I'm investing in emerging markets or overseas ETFs, well, I, I blog about them. I publish them. I talk about them here on this podcast. I'm, you know, starting a, a YouTube channel now where I'm creating videos to better explain some of my positions and what I do. So I'm not only providing you opinion. I'm backing it up with my positions, and it's free of charge. So you can take that information, you can use your own critical thinking, and you can determine whether I'm full of wisdom or whether I'm full of BS. And that's our segue into my most recent purchase of Verizon stock. Now, back a couple weeks ago, when I purchased Verizon, I said that that fell under the category of my strategy to purchase large uh, U.S.-based Blue chip stocks that pay a good dividend that are out of favor. So generally, you could say that that follows a value strategy. I'm not looking for momentum in this particular strategy. Momentum is when you're purchasing something like Apple or Amazon or Tesla, a stock that's hitting all-time highs that everybody's excited about. Everybody's buying more and more of at higher and higher prices. That's momentum investing. I'm not opposed to momentum investing at all. I just have a concern that in this market, valuations across the board are very high, profits are weak, overall the economy is anemic. And for those of you that don't believe that, I just say, you know, continue like we have for, for years now. Go back and look at the 10-year treasury. 
If the economy is truly on fire, why is the 10-year Treasury only paying about, uh, you know, at today's rate, I don't know, something like two and a quarter percent? That's hardly the interest rate that would be paid on an economy if the real unemployment rate was at, you know, all-time lows of four or five percent. We're in a very Federal Reserve, central bank manipulated economy. And because of that, over the past few years, I've shied away from momentum investing. That's not to say that momentum investing doesn't work. That's not to say that I won't start doing it tomorrow. For me right now, I just don't think the risk reward is there because look at momentum stocks. Look at how the bottom eventually falls out of them when the hype is gone. Go look at uh, the 3D printing stocks. Look at Twitter. Look at GoPro. Look at Snapchat. You know, Snapchat is, is the latest of the momentum stocks. It came on as initial public offering. It immediately bounced up to, I don't know, close to $30 a share. I don't think it got that high, but it got pretty darn close. Today it's trading at around $21. So over a, you know, four or six week period, that's, a, that's nearly a, a 25, 30% loss. That's what happens when the bottom falls out of momentum stocks. Under current market conditions with this anemic economy, I'm not willing to take those kind of risks. It's not worth the alpha. Go back and search the Wellsteading podcast for risk-adjusted returns and for uh, what the term alpha means, and you, you'll understand more about what I'm talking about. So it isn't that I'm saying that momentum investing is wrong or inappropriate. It's just saying for me right now, my opinion, my position, is that I don't think that risk is worth the reward. So that gets into the category of investing that I've been doing for, um, you know, at least the last probably 18 months. And then in particular, some of that strategy changed at the end of this past year. But going back a year, 18 months ago, I was talking about a landmine strategy. And actually, I think that was probably more like a year ago. Because if you go back two years uh, and prior to 18 months ago, we were in the downturn of 2015. And I was pretty much very heavily weighted just in the U.S. dollar through an ETF UUP. Again, that's all over at investablewealth.com, or you can go back and listen to previous episodes of this podcast. You'll hear me talk about that in real time, what I was thinking during those particular periods. But in 2016, when it looked like things were starting to stabilize and corporate profits were maybe not increasing, but at least not declining, I made the move into what I called a landmine strategy. And for the most part, although it didn't apply to every stock I purchased that year, uh, because for example, I can, I'm thinking back, I purchased one specialty paper making company called Schweitzer Mudwe. That was something that we made some quick money on. That was a mixture of a value and a momentum play uh, on a, on a, what I felt was an entire sector of the economy that was a very niche, but it was being unfavored at the time. Uh, so there, there was some value and some, some momentum built into that. There were a couple stocks like that that I purchased that did well. But for the most part, I was focusing on blue chip dividend paying stocks that were out of favor. You heard me just a couple episodes ago talking about my three worst positions in my portfolio. Two of those were blue chip stocks that fell into that category. That was Starbucks and Walmart. Well, you know, lo and behold, since I did that episode, and I don't remember off the top of my head how much each of those were down for my particular portfolio at the time, I think somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 2 to 3%, both of those were probably down. Well, as we look at those today, just, you know, these, I don't know, a couple of weeks later, Starbucks value in my portfolio is up uh, close to 7%. So it went from being one of my worst performing stocks to being in the upper end of the middle of my, my portfolio. 
Walmart has risen as well, not uh, just not quite as much. In fact, in relative terms, Walmart might even be up more. But in terms of my portfolio, my gain on Walmart is something in the range of um, close to 4%. The purpose of, of making these value plays at the time was to not only purchase a quality blue chip stock that wasn't going to go out of business, that was out of favor, which meant that it had a, a good valuation. You weren't overpaying for this stock. But it was also to pick stocks that paid good dividends so that if it didn't break out immediately and you had to hold it for six months or 24 months, that while you were waiting to get the capital gain, you would also be collecting a dividend. Walmart at current price levels pays about uh, two and three quarter dividend. I think uh, it's, it's sometimes it was in the 3% range when the price was lower. Starbucks has a higher valuation. It pays about a percent and a half. But I think getting that percent and a half is a, a worthy dividend on a stock that, uh, you know, over the next th three to four years is expected to grow at 15% per year. Well, the reason that I recently purchased Verizon is that it fell into that same kind of category. Right now, Verizon at its current price level, it's throwing off a dividend of about 4.7%. This is at a time when the 10-year treasury is only, you know, paying two and a quarter. So I think money that's parked in Verizon is well worth getting paid the dividend, buying it at a reasonable valuation. Verizon's only valued at uh, less than 13 times earnings, uh, less than 13 times forward earnings. This is at a time when most blue chip stocks are in excess of 18, 19 times earnings. So Verizon falls into that category for me of, of playing that more of a value strategy. So I believe when you're weaving together this strategy in your portfolio, you want to have risk mitigation through diversification. So you buy quality U.S. dividend-paying stocks. You buy quality international stocks. You buy into some riskier emerging markets. You buy not only broad diversification, but you also buy into specific sectors of the economy that are unlikely to lose money forever. Things like healthcare. That's how you, I believe that you construct a long-term winning portfolio. And then you can hold those positions. You don't have to trade daily or trade weekly. You think out your strategies. You look for trends. You invest accordingly. And then as long as the trend is favorable to you and it meets your investment objectives, you stay with it. And so over the past three months or so, the only stock that I've had to add to my portfolio was Verizon. And I was happy enough with all my other stocks that I didn't need to sell them. So when I talk about active trading, it isn't irresponsible or stupid trading. If things are going the way you want them, you stick with it until the trend changes. Now, specifically back to Verizon and the reason I wanted to do today's episode. There's been some bad news about Verizon in the recent earnings announcement. And so today the stock is down over 1%. And people have asked me, am I worried about that? Am I going to panic and sell the stock? Now, what do I care if it's down 1%? The stock market, the S&P 500 on any given week is going to fluctuate to 2.5%. So if you're not willing to take a few percent risk with your money, then you should not be investing in stocks. In fact, if you're not willing to lose 20% of your money, you shouldn't be investing in stocks. You're saying, John, what are you talking about? I'm investing 20% of my money. Yes, it can happen. There are multiple times in history when the market, for a really no known reason, has just had price collapse of 20%. I mean, think of 1987, the black, it was, I guess it was Black Tuesday, Black Monday. You woke up that day, the market was down over, I think, 25%. There was no way to get out of it. 
It was just a mass panic. It went away. If you were smart enough to be in cash at that point, you were buying like a fool. If you happen to be in quality stocks, well, you know what? You held your nose and you waited because eventually it would, it would come back. That was a downturn that wasn't telegraphed. It wasn't as obvious as the dot-com bubble in 2000 or the housing financial crisis in 2008. Those were easier to, to see that the trend was running out, that we were at uh, you know head and shoulders tops, and you had time to get out of those markets if you were wise and paying attention. But that isn't always the case. That's why your money is at risk when you invest it. If there were be no risk, then there wouldn't be any corresponding reward. And so am I going to go out and panic sell Verizon because it's down a percent today? Heck no. Over these past couple weeks that I've owned Verizon, it's down a little more than 2%. The reason that it performed lousy today is because in their earnings call, they announced that they lost some market share to competitors like Sprint and, and some others that were highly discounting unlimited data plans. Well, there's no secret to that. That's something that's been out there for quite a long time. In fact, many of the, of the uh, major analysts downgraded Verizon back in January for this very reason. That was last quarter, right? After they came out with their last quarterly results, these wizards on Wall Street came out and downgraded the stock. And the stock immediately plunged. That's what made me look at wanting to get into the stock because I felt that it had fallen too far. We're still above those lows that the stock hit after it was downgraded and the double bottom that it made back in uh, around February, March. We're still above those levels. I don't think that it's unreasonable to think that the stock could fall another 5 to 10% from here. Back in November, it had dropped down to something like $45 a share. That's the risk you take. But see, the point is, back in November when it fell apart and it fell down to 45 well, you know what? Within two months, it was at over $53 a share. That's the nature of the stock market. There's never one consistent price. It drops too low, and then it bounces up too high. And then it corrects again and bounces too low, and then it bounces up too high. It has very little to do with economic fundamentals and everything to do with human emotion and human nature. And so while some people are trying to hype up the fact that Verizon's losing all the business, I'm here to tell you they're not. Verizon is arguably, if not the best wireless provider in the U.S. It's, it's at least a strong second best. I would argue that it's the best. And even with all the, the price cutting and the competitive pressures that have gone on in the wireless industry, that business has become a reliable source of cash flow that isn't going away anytime soon. People that don't have enough money to pay their student loan debt and can't make payments on their subprime automotive loans and are struggling to pay their rent, well, those very same people are happy to pay Verizon 50 to $200 a month at a minimum for phone service. That's a trend that's not going away anytime soon. Yeah, some of the profits may come down some, but you know what? Verizon's overall gross margin is in the high 50s. Like, the the trailing one was at uh, 59%. Now with some of this competitive pricing pr programs that are that are uh, that are degrading some of their profits, yeah, that could come down some. But what? So it goes down to 50%. That's still an amazing gross margin. As we've talked about before, Verizon is also have a lot of cash and a lot of cash flow that they can make other acquisitions with. 
I think their their acquisition and what they're doing with Yahoo makes a lot of sense in helping Verizon diversify from wireless. And they've downplayed some of what they're going to do in the future. That was another reason that the stock went down a little bit today. But there's no doubt in my mind that there are going to be a lot more acquisitions for Verizon over the next five to ten years. It's their nature to buy into other industries and other markets. Yeah, and so maybe Verizon will fall apart. Maybe it'll drop back down to $40 or $40, $45. But it's not going out of business. It's generally a very well-liked company. It certainly offers better customer service and has higher customer loyalty and ratings than other monopoly-type uh, service providers like AT&T or Comcast. People generally like Verizon. I mean, last time I checked, unlike United Airlines, Verizon wasn't beating up their customers. So should you rush out and buy Verizon? No, I don't think so. I'm not giving you advice. I never do that. I just tell you my opinion and my positions. You can think for yourself. But if you want to collect well over a 4% dividend while you wait for the stock to appreciate from a very low valuation of, you know, 12 and a half, 12 and three quarters forward price per earnings ratio, then I think a stock like Verizon makes sense, which is the same reason that I purchase past stocks like Starbucks, like Walmart, and let's not forget Disney. In fact, let's talk about Disney. I added Disney to my portfolio back almost a year ago. It was, uh, I think, around the middle of May of 2016. It was part of that landmine strategy. Disney is an American institution. Disney is a powerhouse blue chip stock. It, the, the stock was currently out of favor, though. It was paying a nice dividend, but it had had its price come down significantly because earlier in the year, there was all kinds of hype, I guess, um, uh, the end of, of 2015 over, you know, the Star Wars movies that drove the price up really high. And then all of a sudden there was cable cutting and there was revenue moving away from Disney's ESPN property. And so there was downgrading of the stock and all the noise and all the talking heads and all the drama on the financial media was saying, oh, Disney's losing ESPN. It's, it's horrible. It's, it's, you know, going to fall apart, blah, blah, blah. I wasn't buying that. I knew that, yes, ESPN was going to be a drain. But, you know, even if ESPN had to be sold at a loss or even if it was a loss leader for Disney, Disney makes plenty of money from other, other sources. Disney has its never-ending movie franchise. You know, they have Disney Radio. They can move more into TV. They're in sports with ESPN. They have theme parks. They have all the merchandising they make from selling products that are related to those properties. There would have to be a major mammoth management screw-up to long-term impact the profitability of Disney over the next 20 years. That's hard to believe that anybody could be that incompetent. So when Disney was being undervalued because problems they were having with ESPN, I wasn't afraid to buy it. It was a major blue chip company that paid a solid dividend. It wasn't going out of business. In that nearly one year that I held Disney and I collected, oh, upwards of a, a percent and a half, maybe a little less than that dividend, it has produced a, a capital gain in my portfolio of over 14%. To me, that's the kind of alpha, that's a type of risk that I want to take. I want to buy a strong, dividend-paying, American institution-type company that has virtually no probability of going bankrupt and has a likelihood of within, say, 6 to 24 months of producing a double-digit gain. 
So I'm going to continue to hold on to Disney. I'm not going to keep it forever. Although I think it is a great quality stock, like I said, that you could put away for in your portfolio for a long period of time. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to wait till it gets uh, you know a little higher. And I'm going to take my profits. That's how you build wealth. That's how, in my opinion, you should trade stocks. Slow and steady, consistent profits over the long term. Moving in and out of stocks as individual stocks or market sectors become either more favored or less favored. That's where I think we're at with Verizon right now. Of course it's unfavored, just like Disney was a year ago. But I think things are going to work out for Verizon. And until they do, I'll collect that, you know, hefty four and a half, four and three quarters percent dividend. Now that takes me to the point I want to finish up on, which is William O'Neill's book, How to Make Money in Stocks. I'll put a link to it in, in today's show notes. It's an Amazon link. No, it's not an affiliate link. I'm not going to make a few pennies if you buy the book. In fact, I'd recommend that you go check the book out of the library. It's been in print for, I don't know, 20 years. There's all kinds of versions of it out there. They haven't changed very much. The first two or three times I read the book, I think I read it from the library. I didn't buy the book until later on just to keep it as a reference and to, uh, you know, throw the author a couple bucks as a, as a thank you because he had made me money over the years. Now, I bring that book up because I've, I've talked about it before. I think overall, he lays out a good strategy for why market timing can work. Now, his ideas aren't all original, and that's why I like them. They're based on not only his study of history, but also other stock traders that have done market timing type strategies going all the way back to Jesse Livermore in, uh, you know, like the 1800s. And so Bill has formulated his thoughts and his strategies. He stood on the shoulders of giants and he put together that work, how to make money in stocks. Now, I don't think that you should follow it word for word, just like I don't think that any one algorithm or any one trading strategy always works. The market is constantly changing. I think that's a great introduction for those of you that want to learn about market timing and how to invest in stocks. On the other hand, a lot of his strategies haven't worked over the past, say, six or seven years. And I think that has to do specifically with the Federal Reserve's manipulation of interest rates and all the quantitative easing and the way it's distorted the economy and all the malinvestments in zombie companies it's created. In fact, entire zombie sectors. And so while fundamentally, I think that Bill O'Neill's concepts and strategies are sound, because the markets have shifted and changed over the last six or seven years, you can't rely on his methods as pure gospel. And in particular, when he talks about certain chart patterns and breakouts and what he calls a cup and handle, I personally like to look at it as a hook and bar pattern. Those kind of chart patterns are not as reliable or predictable as they were, say, 10 or 15 years ago. Now, that not only has to do with Federal Reserve intervention, that also has to do with high-frequency trading and algorithmic trading and just overall increased sophistication in technology that has been applied in upgraded trend-following type techniques. It also has to do with some rules and regulations from the SEC about what information can be released and back and forth. So there's a lot of reasons why those techniques don't work as good now as they did maybe 10 years ago. But it's still a good introduction into trading stocks and market timing. I think that a strategy that you have to use in today's market that builds on Bill O'Neill's ideas is that you have to anticipate breakouts. 
And the reason for that, if you wait for that pure pattern to emerge and then hit his buy-in point, in a lot of cases, you've waited too long. Because in today's fast-paced markets, as soon as earnings reports come out, you'll see stocks either jump up 5% or fall apart 5%, whether, you know, based on whether it's positive or negative news. And so in most cases, I think you have to anticipate that move, and that's what I've been doing with my trades the last few years. That's what I did with Disney. That's what I did with Walmart. That's what I did with Verizon. That's what I did with Starbucks. Now, sometimes that works out, sometimes it doesn't. But remember, I'm buying good, quality, solid, American, dividend-paying stocks that should they break down, as Walmart did after I purchased it, it was worth holding, it was worth collecting that dividend, and it's worth waiting for that future capital appreciation, just as we're seeing play out in Disney. And that's the note I want to end on today. No one strategy always works. Go back and listen to an episode I did, I don't know, a long time ago entitled The Best Investment Strategy, right? The best investment strategy is the one that's working for you. You might be able to make money selling short. You might be able to make money buying and holding. You might be able to make money day trading. If you can make money in those type of areas, that's what you should do. But most people don't make money. Most people don't have the discipline and don't have the initial capital reserves and don't have the risk mitigation strategies to consistently make money and build wealth in the stock market. And that's my purpose for having this Wealthsteading podcast. To, again, share with you not only my opinions, but more importantly, my positions. You can see what I've done now. You can see what I've done in the past. Hopefully, you learn to develop your own techniques and use your own critical thinking skills to build your own wealth because nobody can do it for you. Well, hey, still lots of topics I didn't get to in today's podcast. We ran out of time. I will get back to you with answering many, many listener questions that I've received about retirement investing programs, investing in things like 401k plans and the government thrift saving program. I need to do a second quarter forecast. Many of you have requested that. And then I know a lot of people have asked for an overall portfolio review. Ah, we've gone back and forth on that. Uh, you hear me get, give bits, bits and pieces of that. I might come in and talk about my top three performing uh, positions at this point, which would give a good uh, comparison to the episode I did not too long ago about my three worst performing positions, which, as we've talked about today, are, you know, two of those are no longer my worst performing positions. Walmart and Starbucks have moved significantly up since then, and that's the nature of markets. They're constantly changing. That's why I'm infatuated by them. So, hey, that'll wrap it up for today. And because it's April 20th, let's end today's episode with a hat tip to a growing trend on our economy. For the Wellsteading Podcast, 